0: Hey, everyone, thank you so much for tuning in. This is the Ubuntu Podcast. Hey, fam, what's up? This is your boy, David Curtis. Who else we got on the line? Someone say hi.
1: What's up? How's it going? Natty Bulchow in the building.
0: What's up, guys? Hannah Gilma here. Once
2: again, happy to to be on.
0: What's up, y'all? Hannah and Natty. Two-thirds, I'm the final third, three-thirds, a whole of the Ubuntu podcast. For those who are listening for the first time, happy whatever day you're listening to this, because we just hope you're listening on whatever day you're most comfortable. This is David. Our mission here is to create a radically thoughtful space for the African diaspora to come together to deeply explore how we can create, sustain, and achieve genuine solidarity and community across the world. And that is just a really fancy, beautiful way to saying we care about black people everywhere and we want black people to care about black people everywhere and so our job is to help unify that experience for black people wherever you are in the wherever corner of the earth right and so deep into season two I would say we're almost near the halfway mark so I'm impressed you know that we even managed to do this in the year called 2020 that we've made it we have a great episode for you all today. It's the end of the year. And so we're going to sit up and we're going to share each of us. I know you all have been hearing from a lot of guests this season, but it's just us today. You know, you got the the, the original back, back talking, eloquating, however y'all want to say.
1: Is that a word?
0: <laughs> it is now. <laughs> y'all know I'm famous. Anybody who knows me knows I'm famous for making up words, and I used to insert them into collegiate discussions, and professors will hold PhDs to be nodding like, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. It's about the confidence. It's about the confidence.
1: <laughs> we'll take it.
0: So we're excited to be able to sit up and, you know, it's been, in all seriousness, it's been an incredibly difficult year, but it's been an incredibly um, significant year. You know, everywhere you go, people are talking about 2020 will be a, a, an era-defining moment, for us in every country of the world with the pandemic, with climate catastrophe, with political landscape that is impacting every country across this um, entire earth. There's so much that's happening and the implications for Black and and African people are are grave, they're serious, but they're also in many ways incredibly optimistic. And so we wanna talk about some of those challenges, we wanna talk about some of those nuances, the good, the bad, and the ugly, about what this year has meant as part of part one of what is gonna be a two part episode. And then for part two, we really wanna do some forecasting and we want to and we want to talk about what are some exciting prospects or some things to really keep our hearts and our minds on for next year as it relates to black people as it relates to africa and the diaspora and so I've done enough talking. You all know this segment, you love this segment. We haven't done it in the last few episodes, but we were not gonna end the year without bringing you your favorite Africa in the News segment. And so we're turning it over to our chief Africa in the News segment correspondent, Mr. Yoma. (laughs) So go ahead and take it away, man.
2: Thank you, David. As you mentioned, we're really going into a year in review now about uh, the topics that we've discussed, and we're going to do a forecast into what are some things that we're uh, looking into in regards to the African continent and the diaspora uh, for 2021. And so in light of that, I actually want to go into an Africa in the News segment that revisits an earlier topic that we discussed back in season one. Now, as many of you know, President Donald Trump installed a travel ban that was extended in February 2020, and this ban actually extended to six new countries. This included Africa's biggest country, Nigeria. It also included Myanmar, which is in Asia, Eritrea, Kyrgyzstan, Sudan, and Tanzania. Out of these African countries that were included in the travel ban, they all have very substantial Muslim populations, and that is why it's believed that they were included in the ban. This ban also prevented immigrants from Sudan and Tanzania from actually moving to the U.S. through the diversity visa lottery, which provides green cards to as many as 50,000 people uh, per year. So, Obviously, there are a lot of impacts that result from this, and I actually want to go into one feature that Time Magazine shared regarding a Somali family that was uh, looking to bring a member of their family home. Afnan Salem, who is a Somali citizen living in Malaysia, he was waiting for three years for U.S. immigration to allow him to come to Ohio to visit his family. Trump's restrictions, however, on visas for those with citizenship uh, from these countries meant that he was barred from entering. Now, under previous governments, Salem's father would have been able to, to come to the U.S. without complications. Salem's brother is a U.S. citizen and has actually filed for a visa on their father's behalf. But this ban has made things very difficult for the family overall. And we see that through this family, we see a double whammy where uh, for Afnan's family, being from Somalia, an African country, as well as a Muslim country, they're a victim of both the anti-Black and the anti-Muslim components of this ban. Now Pew Research actually identified that about 60% of Muslim adults are immigrants and roughly a fifth identifies Black. So we can see how in the US context there are many Africans who are also Muslim and so for this reason are affected by this travel ban very greatly now What's actually changed? Nothing as of yet, but President-elect Joe Biden, who's expected to be inaugurated on January 20th of the next year, has promised to revoke the Trump-era travel ban on his first day in office. And so we see the possibility that what's been a set of restrictions that have really greatly impacted a lot of uh, members of the African diaspora, we see the chance now for uh, this ban to be overturned uh, and for for another chapter to be turned uh, in this area as well. That is this Africa in the News segment, just a review of that. And in the new year, we'll make sure to update you guys. On the travel ban, as well as other new updates that come through.
1: Yeah, that's so um, so powerful and such an interesting story that you that you shared, Hanok, Just on the human impact, right? That that some of these policies end up having. You know, we can get caught up in the politics and and the policy, um, which are important, but at the end of the day, they're only important because of the the real life human impact that they have. So definitely a topic that we will continue to to revisit moving forward. But in speaking about revisiting, you know, today we're actually going to take a look back. And revisit. It sounds weird to say revisit because we're still in the year, but the year is kind of winding down. We're in December as we record this.
0: Listen, if Spotify can give you your wrapped playlist at the beginning of December, we can certainly give you <laughs> a year in review.
1: <laughs> hey, hey, I think we all we all need to reflect on this one for sure. Um, and so I know at the beginning of the th- this season, we talked about how our theme for the podcast this this season would be unprecedented times. And so today what we want to do is we want to take a look back at what has turned into you know an unprecedented year for all of us. And obviously each of us has had unique lived experiences uh, throughout this year. And so we wanted to take some time uh, to personally share what we think to be some of the most significant events to come out of 2020, like what those were, and really revisit this year um, in, a, in a kind of a group conversation. Because um, this is definitely, for me at least, I don't know about you guys, for me, this is a year I will never forget. Um, so definitely looking forward to the conversation. So, you know, let's just, let's just jump right in. Um, you know, obviously people have been thinking a lot about, man, what does 2020 mean? Like, what does it mean for me? What does it mean for the world? Um, so let's just start with this if you had to use a word, right, to sum up 2020, what what would that be and why? Also, you cannot use the word unprecedented. So you got to come up with something different. You start since you got your, I think I have a word too, but I feel like you're ready. Yeah. Okay. Let me go for it. So for me, I think I went through a couple of different words, but at the end of it, the word that came to my mind um, is resilience. The reason that that came to mind is is because this has been a year unlike any other at least that I've lived when you experience something that you haven't in the past you know in this case tends to be a lot of challenging things right that have happened I think it, it pushes you, right? But it can push you in, in a way to respond proactively or respond um, in a way that you never thought you would have to. And so I picked the word resilience because this year 2020 has shown me obviously a lot of tough things have happened. But we as a society, we as individuals, we've all had to adjust. And while the world may be different, the world didn't stop, right? And I think that's a testament to kind of the human element of resilience, uh, the human ability to bounce back to adapt to adjust as you know, kind of life comes at you. Um, and so looking at this year, I, I've really appreciated beyond all of the herd and challenges and, and pain that this year has brought along. I've appreciated seeing resilience in action, both at an individual level within myself, you know, a corporate level within our community, and then really at a humane, like global level, just as 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 people uh, in this global society. Um, and so, yeah, that's that's kind of the word that, that that I'm kind of floating through my mind right now.
2: I think Nazi, I think resilience has been something that's been on my mind for a while now. Our ability, like you said, for us to to really to make it through uh, during these times. Is- been so key. Uh, and the, the fact that we have been able to do that has, has been, been a testament to, like you said, um, our community, this world as a whole. And so I think my word, well, it, it's two words, but I think it works. It, it's quantum leap in the sense of, you know, we, we've we been resilient this year and been able to to make it through all the challenges that are ahead. And at the same time, I think we're taking like a very big step uh, going into 2021, been through this pandemic. And and definitely there, there's still a lot left. We're still, being, we're still dealing with cases. And I know that we're going to deal with the repercussions of it for a very long time. I don't even want to give it a number, a timeline for sure. I think we've taken big steps, um, even in that area now. I know we're talking about vaccines that are uh, either have been approved or uh, going through uh, the steps towards distribution. So that's like one big step. You know, we had a global pandemic and now, you know, it looks like we might have found a possible you know solution or a way to alleviate the spread of the virus like around the world. That's a big thing, a very big step. And then if you look at just our country overall, we now have elected, <laughs> uh, I guess we'll see how things turn out but we have a new a new president a very big step and that happened because of all the work of you know the organizers that been on this podcast and just america as a whole everyone that contributed to really creating real change so it's another big step as well from a personal level i know we're all going through different changes we're all going through different transitions in our lives and i think all of those just resemble like the quantum leap that we're stepping into uh, for the new year so hand it over to you david
0: wow y'all are y'all are sharing all these prolific stuff I really resonate with both of what you all said. I feel like my word is similar, but I, I I would say like the word for 2020 has been illuminating or like maybe illumination if we're doing the non-active nouns <laughs> uh, or adjectives. Um, I would say illuminating because this year I believe more than ever that I've been alive or it's really talked about. I think there's I think there's these moments in history where the 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 veil is torn and people have to come to terms with what is actually true and what is actually wrong we can all know like let's look at what happened this year I mean even just domestically in the U.S. facing the brunt of a global pandemic political upheaval (laughs) social unrest you know economic downfalls the the um The movement of millions into poverty and unemployment and and food insecurity and, and like, disinformation. There's all these things that have happened this year, but this is not a phenomenon that began in 2020 or even 2019. Like, every year, every injustice, every non-disrupted system of, of oppression and inequity, all of these things that we have legalized and failed to legalize and the way we marginalize and the way we push people into different places and we and, 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 and we create systems that are guarded by greed, guarded, by um, inequality, we have been paving the road for this kind of meltdown for years, And it's been disregarded, it's been ignored, it's only been partially managed, but no one's ever really pulled the covers and said, look at this mess that we've created and now we have to acknowledge. And so I feel like everyone this year, no matter what sector you're in, no matter where you fall on a political spectrum, we're all kind of bonded by this shared vision, that we have to see what it is that we're really dealing with. And we see the systems behind, the inner workings behind these um, occurrences. They're not magical. They didn't fall out of the sky and just, you know, divinely begin to segment people into all these other places that are unfair and unjust. These are the products of hundreds of years of systematic segmentation, systematic oppression and marginalization. And it's here. For all of us to see and it's popular to talk about it it's no longer taboo i mean they just legalized the house is voting to legalize marijuana (laughs) like we're seeing stuff this year that's never been talked about before in, in trying to reverse things that have been damaging to so many communities so i would say for that reason this year is illuminating 2020 has been the year of illumination
1: yeah i think all these words are so um so powerful thank you guys for sharing them and and hopefully you know for our listeners it gives you all something to reflect on as well and think about what your word for the year is you know i think it's just a powerful exercise to participate in individually now let's let's sort of break things down a little bit more and let's take a look at how this year has affected really three areas three buckets that we like to categorize it into so one being global society, the other looking at the political landscape, and then ultimately also global economy. These are all interrelated, right? We're going to take a stab at each of these. So really curious to start with global society and what has this year really looked like? David, could you tell us a little bit more about that?
0: You all know for our listeners that we we are a podcast about the African diaspora. So I'm going to share a few things that I, I think are specific to the continent of Africa, but really the African diaspora. 2019 was coined by many Pan-Africanism as the year of the return. 2020 is supposed to be beyond the return and then nobody can fly anywhere. So we have to really figure out what does Pan-Africanism mean in a global moment where crisis is emerging and we have these virtual connections and we have to really look beyond just centering certain people. And so I want to kind of do that in this moment. Black people around the world, really, they did a lot of incredible things. And I think something that's incredible happened across societies where the African dias is is located, is that there has been a real death. I'm going a, I'm a, I'm a to call it a death. A death to colonialism and a challenging and a confrontation of colonialism. One thing that's happened all over the world really sparked by the Black Lives Matter movement that was U.S. created but has turned into a global movement where Black people in every country and every corner are taking this rallying cry and applying it to the experience of their own communities. And so we saw global protests challenging colonialism, challenging the roots of colonialism in places like Belgium, in places like Denmark, in places like Switzerland and Norway, the Netherlands. You had coalitions of Black people, and these are Black people with all kind of ties to other places. Black people from Northern Africa, Black people from Southern Africa, Black people from West Africa, refugees that made their way around the Middle East. And they talked about what is it that we can do in our local communities that really speaks to this idea that my life matters here in Belgium or in in Berlin or You know, and and, and I think what's really been incredible is to see that these conversations, for example, a place like Belgium has really begun to grapple with its genocidal past. And we talk about King Lepoy II, who murdered tens of millions of Black people within Congo and has created a, uh, you know, a malicious state where there's abundance of slavery that still takes place today. There are people in this year who have had that conversation to remove public statues and memorials to this man that have gone into museums in places like Belgium or even places like the UK. And there's been a large global conversation about how do we collectively memorize and assign memory to people who have harmed, who have denigrated the African people. And so that is a conversation that I think that was really prevalent in societies this year. And I also want to point to another thing that's really important is outside of the diaspora, on the continent itself, we saw marginalized African, people who are poor, people who are um, disenfranchised, Young people, people who are LGBTQ, people who are disabled, come out in swarms and say, My life matters, and organized, were strategic, showed up to do the real work and received national and international solidarity and attention. One of the obvious examples in SARS in Nigeria, you know, what happened at the Lecky massacre on October in October, you know, where hundreds were slaughtered because they were protesting the disbandment of a corrupt police force. We saw the same thing happening in in Congo with the hashtag Congo is Bleeding, a coalition of young black, mainly women leaders and organizers who are calling for a divestment from the mineral extraction company. We saw the same thing in Namibia and South Africa where young people came together to talk about Shut It Down and M.I. neck to talk to local leaders about what can be put in place to prevent femicide and gender-based violence against women through laws and legislation and local city councils. And so we see these, we see these things They've always happened, right? I believe there's always been people in these communities who have shown up, who have done the work, who have said, even amongst monolithic communities, even amongst all African nations, there are still places of power that keep people in and keep people out. And we deserve the right to have an equal and equitable lifestyle with those in our country and to make our countries live up to its most central ideal. And so these movements, though, really catapulted in this year and they've changed the consciousness of not only people in those countries, but the consciousness of black people all over the world because black people in America or in Brazil, you know, where there's also been incredible political change. They can't say that they don't know what's happening in other countries. They can't say that there's not movements. And so I would say that's something that's really been profound about this year, the grassroots movement and the cause to really showing that black people matter, black lives matter. So that's what I would say has been a really significant factor about 2020 social landscape. Yeah, I'd say that
2: a lot of what David mentioned there has relates to the death of colonialism and the, the building and the social movements that are taking place across the continent. You can see the direct links between political institutions right now in Africa and the challenges in a way that we're seeing when it comes to, to governance and what is the correct way to govern an African country? What is the, what way corresponds with the needs and, and the grievances of people in, in these societies? So from a from a governance and election standpoint, we've seen that COVID-19 has also challenged the ability for governments to actually hold elections. So just an a few, countries such as Guinea, Cameroon, Mali, and Benin have had elections. And then countries that have suspended elections that are now undergoing campaigns are in the process of preparing are Gambia, Kenya, Nigeria, Tunisia, Zambia, Zimbabwe, and Ethiopia. And we've seen in these countries that institutions that are either being built or in the process of being reformed are, are really very much under threat. If you look at Mali, for instance, in August, there was a military coup which overthrew the then-president Ibrahim Abubakar But actually, as of December 5th, Mali's interim legislator had elected Colonel Malik Diaw, who was a member of the military government that actually toppled that president. The coup has been said to have been caused by multiple factors. Anti-government protests that were directly protesting corruption, mismanagement, the economic downturn in the country. But then you also have uh, security concerns that took place in the country. The conflict in Libya actually extended into Mali. We saw that weapons from Libya actually went into the Sahara Desert uh, and actually fueled what was a separatist conflict in the northern part of Mali uh, which then turned into larger support for many Islamist militant groups that were in the country which is also believed to have led to the military coup that took place in Mali uh, and so we're seeing uh, the military presence in the country there are French troops, Americans, UN peacekeepers, British artillery, they're all there in Mali really trying to restore security, but we're seeing that there is a real difficulty from from outside, from the international community, and in really understanding the internal issues in Mali. We saw that the African Union actually suspended the country once the military coup took place, but then they lifted that suspension. And so we're overall seeing that international actors are struggling, in a sense, to understand what these challenges are. So in Uganda now, we're actually also seeing a real challenge to the democratic process. Bobby Wine, otherwise known as Robert uh, Kiagulani, he's actually one of the biggest challengers to current President Yori Museveni, who's been in power since 1986. He's the third longest ruling African leader, third behind Teodoro Mbasogo from Equatorial Guinea, who's been in power since 1979, and then Paul Bia, who's been in power in Cameroon since 1975. Now, this week, Ugandan security forces reportedly opened fire on the campaign convoy of Bobby Wine. Uh, Many really graphic images circulated across the internet, and Bobby Wine is really being looked at as one of the biggest challengers to President Museveni's tenure in office. He entered politics in 2017. He actually was a popular um, Afrobeat star, and a lot of his music during then focused on social issues in the country. Uh, he's also called the ghetto president as a reference to his very humble upbringing. And he actually ended up becoming a member of parliament uh, in central Uganda back in 2017. So we're seeing Uganda uh, a real challenge um, when it comes to the upcoming elections that are gonna take place in January of 2021. Bobby Wine uh, and President uh, Yori Museveni are really uh, engaging in a back and forth. And we're seeing through security forces and other Ugandan political institutions, the use of, of violence uh, to really intimidate uh, opposition leaders like Bobby Wine.
1: Yeah, I think that's that's so interesting what you're sharing, Hanuk, around the, the idea of upholding these, these um, you know, institutions of, of government and what that'll look like, especially for such longstanding leaders, you know, in countries like Uganda. Do you think that, you know, for a country like a Uganda, what... What what to you is a catalyst for something to change that hasn't changed in the last thirty plus years?
0: Hey, like I appreciated what you shared about Uganda, and I think to answer your question, Addy, I find it really interesting that a lot of the people I know in Uganda who are very uh, skeptical or concerned to really talk about politics and what I would um, describe as um, emancipatory politics, liberation politics revolutionary politics often in other conversations outside of this year didn't want to bring up Bobby Wine and what has been this ascension as Henock mentioned to this him now running for president he's been in official politics for years and so I remember having conversations with people and you know I'd bring them up because I'm in the U.S. and I don't have the same day-to-day experience and so we were like oh we're you know we don't want to talk about hell you know like we don't want to have any of that kind of negative attention Um, because there is a culture of um, censorship and suppression. And so I didn't even realize that I was possibly ignorantly putting people in harm's way if I was hosting conversations in public spaces, like at schools, about this person who I thought was a politician. But I've seen this year, like the way that these same people have taken to social media and are incorporating conversations about him and what he stands for in terms of, of democracy in um, education and in conversations at church and religion. So I think it's been a transformative year that has awoken the consciousness of people intergenerationally. These are young people. These are young adults. These are um, seniors and elders. They're all talking about this man and talking about what he stands for. And many are beginning to support him um, in ways that I haven't seen previously. So I think that's just so great. To um to witness, and I'm just really my fingers are crossed for the region.
2: Yeah. Uh- just quickly, want to add. I mean, if you look at Uganda's youth population, I think they have one of the highest youth populations in the world.
0: I think it's the second highest at this point. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So, so if you look at that, and you look at Bobby Wine and where he comes from, uh, this you know sort of humble background, and the fact that he's also a young person, he can very much relate to uh, the needs of the Ugandan people. And you look at President Museveni, who who's been in power for a very long time, a bit older, and you can see the contrast there. And there's a new generation, of course, seeking change in a way.
1: Yeah. Absolutely. Thank you guys for sharing those those thoughts there i think that um you know both at a global society level and then with that politically um been a lot to reflect on this year and something i've been thinking about just kind of coming from a business background has been what have the effects of all of that right including then also the health effects of of covid right been on on the economy within africa um and there have been really a lot of a lot of Uh, Different things that have been happening. So obviously, we know that COVID has caused a huge shock to the global economy, Um, and Africa is no different. You know, the continent, the continent's economy uh, is projected to contract by one point six percent this year, which sounds like a you know kind of a small number, but it would mark the worst year since nineteen seventy on the continent, especially because the continent has been growing, Uh, and not surprisingly. Uh, and unfortunately, poverty is also expected to increase within the continent, with regional poverty projected to go up by two percent, which is going to, you know, effectively erase over five years of progress and poverty reduction. And that puts millions of people into poverty. I think people, you hear the
0: numbers, and people don't realize that like that's millions of, like, uh, like tens of millions of people.
1: Yeah, it's huge. This year has, and and COVID has impacted different sectors, right? But you know, from from a financial kind of economic perspective, COVID has now really threatened the stability of the banking sector. Now there's a likelihood that there will be an increase of non-performing loans. And what that really means is basically a loan which the, bor- the borrower can no longer pay because they don't have the funds. And I think because of you know the declines in income and, and revenue, it'll be more challenging for borrowers to fulfill those obligations. And so we've got kind of another double whammy. Hannock talked about one earlier, uh, but we've got another one here where borrowers can't fulfill their obligations and now that makes life increasingly more difficult for microfinance institutions because when their borrowers are facing instabilities, it means that they themselves have a tough time be, uh, remaining solvent right staying afloat financially because they're not they're not receiving the payments that they've loaned out uh, which then makes it hard for them to turn around and provide loans to you know additional people that are in need and so unfortunately this could turn into a sad and, and, and difficult cycle where people who have lost income due to covid are not able to access the loans that they need to survive and then the institutions that were providing them those loans are becoming increasingly more insolvent so they can't provide loans to other people who have additionally become challenged due to covid COVID. And specifically... You know, based on some of the research that the Brookings Institution has done, uh, COVID has had a huge impact on food prices on the continent. You know, obviously, when the initial panic of or the worry of, of COVID, you know, really spread in March, April, um, that led to a lot of panic buying, it led to, you know, some pretty rash and instant decisions on transport restrictions, and also led to increasingly expensive food imports. And then on the demand side as well, demand for African agriculture from, you know, their main customers in Asia. Europe and, and the U.S. also has declined, which has unfortunately negatively uh, affected you know, the economy overall. And, and so we see, you know, we've seen some of these elements, right, at a con- continental level. Um, but then, you know, similar to some of the examples that, that David and Hanukkah were providing, there have also been effects, right, uh, at a regional and an individual country level. And ultimately, right, COVID has had a negative effect on the debt to GDP ratio of several countries. Uh, and an, an African Union study on the economic impact of COVID-19 that came out, you know, back in April showed that the continent could lose up to 500 billion, dollars, which would require several countries to heavily borrow in order to survive. Uh, and according to the UN, COVID has really caused four key challenges this year that the continent, but then also individual countries need to keep a close eye on um, moving forward. The first is that, uh, like we mentioned, individual countries have had increasingly high debt to GDP levels, um, which makes it a, which makes it really unsustainable to maintain a healthy economy. Right. If your debt is higher than the gross domestic product that you're you know bringing into the country, it's very hard to. To maintain a healthy economy, if you're, you know, you're 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 stuck in debt. Uh, and secondly, to go into that a little bit more, individual countries are facing high fiscal deficits, um, and what that is um, are really gaps between um, spending and revenues. And so, because countries are not bringing in as much money, right, from the revenue side they need additional funds from the spending side to support citizens that are losing jobs and are facing increasingly difficult times, governments are forced then to lend from external sources, right? And so now they have to keep going back and getting these external loans, which they don't want um, a lot of times because um, the terms for those are increasingly difficult for them to deal with, especially with the interest rate. And that only further increases their, their debt burden. You know, Beyond that, also, we see that countries are forced um, then to take on these additional loans and like I mentioned, the terms for those are, are, are pretty challenging. And specifically, the rates can go from between 5 to 16% on simple standard government bonds, which in the U.S. is like, no, like it's just like zero. In terms of the interest rate here, it's 5 to 16%, which is insane. And unfortunately, the interest rates in sub-Saharan Africa or countries in sub-Saharan Africa um, have become the fastest growing expenditure of African budgets. Um, so that's really also been a big challenge. And then, and then lastly, kind of that fourth area that has been affecting countries in Africa has been the depreciation of many African currencies against major international currencies like the dollar or the pound. Um, that's really led to inflation in countries like Botswana and South Africa. And this is dangerous because currency valuation not only makes it harder to purchase imports, for, you know, large capital expenses, whether that's infrastructure development or large scale projects the country is taking on, but it also lowers the purchasing power overseas for for citizens in the country um, and, and really makes makes life more challenging. And so all to say, clearly it's been a tough year, right, on the continent in all areas, whether it's economically, whether it's socially, whether it's politically. But we're looking forward to turning the page, hopefully. I mean, all after all of that... <laughs> Right guys, to a brighter, a brighter twenty twenty one. Hey, we gotta we gotta review the year, you know. No, uh, no sunshine and roses. We gotta be honest about where we are, so that we can get to where we want to go. Right?
0: Yeah, but one of the things that was so important about what you both said, but Natty, like when you talked about the GDP to debt ratio and then the revenue deficit, and like, yes, I know for a lot of people, you're probably like, okay, like what does that mean or like whatever, you know? Because Natty's a he's a finance guru. When you talk about what a country makes is less than what they have to borrow. That means the first decision when that country's deciding where to spend their money and and they're borrowing from these countries, many of these countries who they were former colonies over, who have, you know, extracted from them for centuries and they don't have the accumulated wealth that these other countries now have and are lending to them at unfair practices, they have to decide we can't default on our loans because then 50 years from now we're going to be paying three times as much as what we're paying now. So all of these programs programs, like you're talking about, Natty, the schools, the infrastructure, those kind of things. We can't fund that ourselves. We have to go out and get it funded again by the same sources that we're trying to not, you know, trying to escape funding from. So it's that horrible economic cycle that doesn't pack the po- that doesn't pack the political landscape because, you know what I mean? Like in terms of, of a country who has financial control over another country and they say, we want these kind of people in office. We want these kind of people in your legislative council because they'll help a, a, advance and promote our interests. These people are often in opposition to the will of the people. And so the people have to create their own consciousness to disrupt political systems that are often endorsed by economic gain for some, but really extraction for most. So I want people to see like these are all interconnected, the policy, the society, the economics, and it's all, it's all a game. And, but to make it positive, like you said, Natty, there is hope, there is possibility, there is change. Africa as an entire continent is a very new continent in terms of democracy, you know, really less than a century old. And so there's a possibility and there, and there is, there is hope that we'll see something different. And maybe 2021 is the year that out of all this turmoil, we can begin to build and Africans specifically who are on the continent alongside the diaspora can continue to build the Africa we deserve.
1: To put a pin in in the last comment that you made, that cycle, I think, is challenging, right? And and countries are forced to make difficult decisions economically. Um, And just to give a quick little preview. I think while while this year has been one that's been challenging, it has also provided a blank canvas for African countries to reimagine what the future could look like, and and that includes areas like where do we get our financing from, where do we where do we purchase some of these things from, and you know we'll talk about this more in the next episode, but hey, what what things can we actually produce ourselves, right? How can we be more self reliant, and so we'll talk about a lot more of these things and episode or part two, I guess you can call it. Um, but I just want to put a pin in it right, right here. And so this has been a great, great conversation, guys. Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts on what has been ultimately a challenging year for all of us, uh, but clearly a year of reflection. And, and hopefully if we we reflect well, uh, a year that we can build from.
2: Thanks so much, guys. Thanks so much to our listeners for for tuning in. We really want this to be a continued active dialogue. This is only part one of our yearly review. So please reach out to us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter to let us know your thoughts. How has this year affected you personally? Do you have any amazing stories to share that exemplify the spirit of Ubuntu? Please do let us know. Till next time, take care.